the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. July 9th, 2021. Peggy Noonan has an interesting column this morning. The culture war is a leftist offense. It's titled. She quotes a prominent socialist writer, Kevin Drum, who points out that if you hate culture wars, blame liberals. His point, as he states it, it's not conservatives who have turned American politics into a cultural war battle. Since roughly the year 2000, according to survey data, Democrats have moved significantly to the left on most hot-button social issues, while Republicans have moved only slightly to the right. He cites data on issues from abortion and religion to guns, same-sex marriage, immigration, taxes. The numbers suggest the obvious conclusion that over the past two decades, Democrats have moved left far more than Republicans have moved right. He's not personally unhappy with this, but Democrats should be concerned they're moving further away from median voters. Black conservatives and Hispanic conservatives, one scholar notes, don't actually buy into a lot of these intellectual theories of racism. They often have a very different conception of how to help black or Hispanic communities than liberals do. This was my point yesterday. I think when it comes to critical race theory, 1619, and even the BLM curricula, I'm of the thought there are higher percentages of Keisha Kings and Glenn Lowry's in the black community opposed to this kind of junk thought than there are whites who who support it. Almost all of this subtextual postmodern intellectual anarchy comes from European scholars, not African-American scholars. From the likes of your Jacques Derrida, your Paul Demon, and Jean Baudrillard. It's a funny thing happened with what the French here produced, though, and that is that American intellectuals took all of what they were saying just a bit too seriously. Talk about a Leviathan eating its own tail. It fuels secessionism, gnaws at national unity, abets Islamism, attacks France's intellectual and cultural heritage. The threat? Certain social science theories entirely imported from the United States, and I'm quoting the president of France, Emmanuel Macron. The New York Times writes that French politicians, high-profile intellectuals, and journalists are warning that progressive American ideas, specifically on race, gender, and colonialism, are undermining their society. There's a battle to wage against an intellectual matrix from American universities, warned Mr. Macron's education minister. Emboldened by these comments, comments, prominent intellectuals have come together against what they regard as a combination by the out-of-control woke leftism of American campuses and its attendant cancel culture. Got that? Not even the French, who gave us all this crud, want it anymore. Give the French this. They know the importance of culture, at least their culture, and they are willing to defend it. They don't need lectures and do not engage in debates about nationalism in France. They have pride in who they are and do not doubt their very existence. 
exactly what the French philosopher Jean-Francois Ravel taught us, but we ignored. Now, what's fun is though the French are fighting back against their very own Frankenstein, we on the right are usually criticized for engaging the culture and the culture wars. I get why. When they come up, the left loses because of overreach. I have no idea why soy dissent conservatives keep telling us to drop it. The left isn't dropping it, so my view is we can fight it or lose to it. My thought is this. As Abraham Lincoln put it about a real culture war, a hot one, took place in the 19th century, quote, both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept, rather than let it, accept war rather than let it perish. And the war came, close quote. Historically enough, and ironically enough, it was and is the Democrats in both cases that would make the war. The question is whether Republicans and conservatives will accept it this time. I wrote all about of this at some lengths a few years ago in our book, American Greatness, Culture Wars. It's a phrase toxic and noxious to most Republican political analysts. Abortion, marriage, family, race, religion, education, patriotism, crime, drugs, illegal immigration. Stay away, they say, too divisive, as if there's anything else to talk about besides taxes. Those issues caricature the party in the movement, they will tell us. We want 60 to 80 percent issues, they will tell us. We can't afford to lose the suburban vote or the women's vote, or we have to do better with the Hispanic population, they will tell us. The party, after all, aren't we told, is basically economically conservative and basically socially moderate. That's the comfortable thing for the donor class to say at their donor class events. Well, yes, I'm a Republican, but not that kind of Republican. I'm socially moderate, but economically conservative. If there is one kind of speech Republican consultants know not to mimic or come close to, it's the speech Patrick Buchanan gave at the 1992 Republican convention, the speech where he spoke so dramatically of a culture war. The Buchanan speech in 1992, coming right after the Los Angeles Rodney King riots was indeed a stemwinder. Its most memorable lines, however, were descriptive, not prescriptive. Pat Buchanan was not calling for a culture war. He was describing one. He said, quote, there is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war as critical to the kind of nation we shall be as the Cold War itself. For this war is for the soul of America, close quote. From there, Buchanan spoke about jobs and the economy, teams of supporters who had told him their stories about lost jobs and shuttered factories, environmental regulations that cared more about owls than people. And then he spoke of and concluded his speech with a story of two policemen he met who helped push back and dissuade rioters in Los Angeles from further mayhem. Here's what he said, quote, They had come into Los Angeles late into the evening of the second day, and the rioting was still going on, and two of them walked up a dark street where the mob had burned and looted every single building on the block but one, a convalescent home for the aged. And the mob was headed in to ransack and loot the apartments of the terrified old men and old women inside. The troopers came up the street, M-16s at the ready, and the mob threatened and cursed, but the mob retreated because it had met one thing that could stop it. Force rooted in justice and backed by moral courage. 
Greater love than this hath no man than that he lay down his life for his friend. Here we were, 19-year-old boys, ready to lay down their lives to stop a mob from molesting old people they did not even know. And as those boys took back the streets of uh, Los Angeles block by block, my friends, we must take back our cities and take back our culture and take back our country, close quote. That was the gravamen and peroration of Buchanan's culture war speech. It wasn't heavy on abortion, mentioned the issue twice very briefly. The words race and affirmative action appear nowhere in the speech. Its only mention of prayer in school was that George H.W. Bush supported voluntary prayer. Opposition, opposition to gay marriage received one sentence. This was 1992. Remember reading or listening to the Buchanan speech that consultants today warn of because it is too incendiary and divisive. One can conclude candidates are instructed to stay away from the issues of law and order, the defense of police, the celebration of justice, and harmony kept by the moral force of the laws backed by the sacrifice and presence of the police. Rereading that speech, one might say it was more Richard Nixon, 1968, speaking of the forgotten Americans, the non-shouters, the non-demonstrators, than the Christian coalition or major moral majority of, say, a Pat Buchanan or a Jerry Falwell or a James Dobson or Franklin Graham. It was about a safe. It was about safe streets and putting down and stopping riots. That was the essence of the culture war that we were all instructed was too divisive and turned off the majority of Americans. To be sure, politicians running for national office stayed away from that kind of talk or phraseology. Try to recall John McCain in 2008 or Mitt Romney in 2012 or, for that matter, Bob Dole in 1996, all candidates who lost ever talking about those things. But the conservative movement did not stay away from those issues, nor did the conservative think tanks. And looking at the losses of Republican presidential campaigns from moderates and traditional Republicans like Dole, McCain, and Romney, Romney, who truly did stay away from anything like culture speak, one wonders if that may not have been part of their strategic mistake. It would be of some irony, and a point we will return to later, that George Bush's election to the presidency in 2000 became a reality due to a Supreme Court decision from a court the first culture warriors took the scalp from, and that is Robert Bork, who should have been sitting on that court at that time, but it was deprived and denied him because Democrats and the left had no problem engaging in culture wars with atomic rhetoric. Think of the worst and most traveled things said about Bob Bork during his confirmation hearings in 1987. They are the words of Ted Kennedy, quote, Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions. Blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters. Rogue police would break down citizen doors, citizens doors and midnight raids. School children could not be taught about evolution. Writers and artists could be censored at the whim of the government. And the doors of the federal courts would be shut on the fingers of millions of citizens for whom the judiciary is and is often the only protector of. That was wholly unfair and an untrue attack on the judicial philosophy of Robert Bork, but it had purchase, and as I say, it traveled. Interesting to think about that indictment right now in those words and how conservatives are treated by the left. But the larger point, the left, the liberal movement in America, and Democrats had no problem engaging in culture wars, whether they be subtly 
or not so subtly. Meanwhile, for decades, Republicans were urged not to so engage. Indeed, they were urged to triangulate those issues, water them down, or simply ignore them. For these kinds of reasons, one of the heroines of the intellectual conservative movement, Midge Dechter, would often say the Republican Party is, is the cross the conservative movement has to constantly bear. Why do I recite all this? Because what I fear is too many Republicans forget that conservatism is first and foremost and always been, has been first and foremost about our culture. Feel free to start with William Buckley's very first book about the problems in higher education. Feel free to move to his second book about communism in America or the Goldwater and Reagan books and speeches in the 1960s about how the human condition is traduced by socialism here and abroad. Goldwater wrote in chapter one of the conscience of the conser- of a conservative that man is a spiritual being and that, quote, man's most sacred position possession possession is his individual soul, which has an immortal side, but also a mortal one. The mortal side establishes his absolute differentness from every other human being. Only a philosophy that takes into account the essential differences between men and accordingly makes provision for development developing the different potentialities of each man can be claimed to have accord with nature close quote the best lights of our movement in the 80s and 90s certainly saw us as a cultural movement from the books of Dinesh D'Souza to Alan Bloom to Shelby Steele of course there's the uh, there's your William J Bennett's and you have your Midge Dechters and your Charles Murray's and your Heather MacDonalds and your Irving Crystals, these and Norman Podhoritz's, these were all writers on our culture. Vice President Dan Quayle may have been scorned by the elites for his Murphy Brown speech in 1992, warning about the problems of out of wedlock birth. But William Buckley would write before Quayle's speech, uh, same month, there's only one question to ask a presidential candidate that makes any sense, and it is this. What do you propose to do about the rate of illegitimate births? Soon following more conservative intellectual attention rose to this issue as well with the famous 1994 Irving Crystal essay, Life Without Father, and a whole series of books and conferences and nonprofits dedicated to thinking through and solving the issues of fatherlessness and out-of-wedlock birth. My point, if crime and safety and community are the cultural issues before us, fine, bring it on. Who brought those issues to us? A reactionary Republican movement called Some Lives Matter More Than Others? A violent conservative movement called Antil or Anti-Leftism? No. And whose idea was it to bow to when it wasn't ignoring Marxist-inspired violence? Republicans? No. The first duty of government is safety. We know this from the Federalist Papers. The first duty of politics is the protection of the community. We know this from Aristotle. If the determination of whether we and Ronald Reagan's words are now fighting once again between man's age-old dream, the ultimate and individual freedom consistent with law and order, or down to the ant heap of totalitarianism, who brought us that fight? We know that answer as we knew it in Lincoln's day. One side would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish. Please let us accept it. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, and happy Friday once again. This is uh, your show, Open Lines Friday, 602-508-0960. Anything you want to talk about, talk to me about, except medical, legal, and accounting advice. I'll do it all, anything. Uh, I don't buy the... Um, I don't buy the uh, feminist, modern feminist notion that the personal is political and that everything should become political based on your personal life, habits, tastes. That's a leftist notion that dispenses with any concepts of right and wrong. It just allows you to have your own truth and be uh, true to yourself and uh, basically, go along with uh, whatever force wind fa- uh, throws you in in whatever direction you so please. But <clears throat> in the context of Open Lines Friday, I will, of course, answer any questions, personal or political, as far as preferences, interests, tastes go. All right. This is interesting to me. We started the week with Joe Biden, President Biden saying, quote, we need to go community by community, neighborhood by neighborhood, and oftentimes door to door, literally knocking on doors to ensure Americans get vaccinated. His press secretary, Jen Psaki, said the same thing that very day. Joe Biden took it up uh, a bit of a notch, uh, saying, doubling down, saying, please get vaccinated now. It's never been easier. It's never been more important. Do it now for yourself and people you care about for your neighborhood, for your country. It sounds corny, but it's a patriotic thing to do. It isn't. It has nothing to do with patriotism. Not whatsoever. Not one enough. Not 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 in any sense of the word patriotic, which makes me wonder why it is that the only time Joe Biden talks about patriotism has to do not with what we think of as patriotism, but these new things that are emblems and badges of patriotism. Things like wearing a mask, you know, concealing your face, or getting an injection from a uh, medical professional that you may or may not, under the law, uh, have the right to decide for yourself. It's not for the president to define your patriotism based on your behavior In fact, it has been part and parcel of the left lecturing the right for decades upon decades that we should not question other people's patriotism and that the Democrats, thank you very much, are quite just as patriotic as the Republicans. So on that last point, sure, sure, if patriotism is about putting a diaper on your face rather than saluting and supporting the flag and the country that your fellow Americans gave their all, including their lives, to defend. Sure, the patriotism's the same, which is to say it's not even in the same moral vocabulary. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. You can't not have a smile in two situations, listening to Dolly Parton or playing a banjo. You can't help but smile, right? So if you're ever in a bad mood, just put on some Dolly Parton or 
take out your banjo. Javier Becerra is our Secretary of Health and Human Services, who stepped into it yesterday saying the quiet part out loud, just as you would think the White House would do its utmost to kind of tamp down on the concerns of vaccine hesitancy and government overreach, given Joe Biden talking about the government going door to door and literally knocking to get all Americans vaccinated and saying it's the patriotic thing to do. Just when you think they'd want to maybe tamp down on that because the resistance to the notion of government agents knocking on your door with vaccines to inject in your arm is um, so unbelievably dystopian future science fiction George Orwell future shock to the 10th degree that you would think maybe they'd drop it. No. As they use the private sector to do their work in censorship, Joe Biden thought he would use his Secretary of Health and Human Services to kind of defend the White House in its positioning. So Javier Becerra went on the network you go on to if you're defending Democrats, and that was CNN, and he gave this interview yesterday. I wonder if you can answer that criticism. It's none of the government's business knowing who has or hasn't been vaccinated. What do you say? Brianna, uh, perhaps uh, we should point out that the federal government has had to spend trillions of dollars to try to keep Americans alive during this pandemic. So it is absolutely the government's business. It is taxpayers' business if we have to continue to spend money to try to keep people from contracting COVID and and helping reopen the economy. And so it is our business to try to make sure Americans can prosper, Americans can freely associate. And knocking on a door has never been against the law. You don't have to answer, but we hope you do, because if you haven't been vaccinated, we can help help dispel some of those rumors that you've heard and hopefully get you vaccinated. Perfect. So the government is going to now show up and correct the media. Okay. By knocking on your door with a needle. Uh, Do me a favor, because what Javier Becerra said today in trying to clean that up was that he was taken wildly out of context in saying that the government wants a database on who is and who isn't vaccinated. Do me a favor. Was it wildly out of context? Listen to the question. Listen to the answer. Do it again, William. I wonder if you can answer that criticism. It's none of the government's business knowing who has or hasn't been vaccinated. That is the question. Brianna, perhaps uh, we should point out that the federal government has had to spend trillions of dollars to try to keep Americans alive during this pandemic. So it is absolutely the government's business. business. It is taxpayers' business. The question was, is it the government's business knowing who is and who isn't vaccinated? And his answer was, it is absolutely the government's business. How is that taking him wildly out of context to say the government wants a database? It's the government's business to know who and who isn't vaccinated. Bill, what is the plain meaning of that? If it's the government's business, what's the government going to do? I would think, and how do you keep track? You might create a master list also known as a database. Yes, we'll keep it right there on the famous P drive, won't we, that anyone can access our health records with. Yeah, 
you say the quiet part out loud, trying to calm Americans' fears, only to spike them. But, and I kid you not, not going to waste your time with it, but go look at it if you want to. Have faith a little bit, because Javier Becerra may not be as important as we thought. Joe Biden introducing him today couldn't remember his name. Maybe he's not as important as we thought. Or maybe Joe Biden's not as content or uh, able as we thought. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. John, the mentee, raised a good question today. He said, whatever happened to the story of Larry Elder running for governor, speaking of the former attorney general of California, which Javier Becerra is? Um, Whatever did happen to that? Well, Larry, last he said, was very seriously considering it. And what I said was, I know Larry well enough to know that he wouldn't be saying that if I didn't think there was a better than 90 percent chance for him to run. He addressed some of this and went even further, which is what Larry is so good at, on Fox News this morning. Can you play it for us, Bill? And on the 4th of July, the Utah chapter of Black Lives Matter uh, posted a picture of an American flag saying, in part, when we black Americans see this flag, we know the person flying it is not safe to be around. When we see this flag, we know the person flying it is a racist. We know to avoid you. It is a symbol of hatred. That's absolutely remarkable, is it not? Larry Elder joins me now. Uh, okay, Larry, they say the flag represents hatred. But, but isn't it supposed to represent unity? I mean, what's your reaction? You use the word we. Uh, what gives this person the power to talk about we? I just saw a poll recently that said the majority of black Americans are either extremely proud or very proud to be American. So this individual is speaking for himself, not for black people. My father was a Montford Point Marine. They were the first black Marines. He served in World War II on the island of Guam. I guess this guy feels that my dad was a chump for being patriotic. What he said is absolutely outrageous and it's offensive. Uh, but again, he's not speaking for we. He's speaking for himself. Yeah, and all those people who've given their lives for that flag and what it represents. All right, Larry, I want to move on. You're a California guy. We know that. You're seriously considering, a birdie tells me, of of, uh, a run against Gavin Newsom for governor. Um, When will we know if that's official? Well, I'm really thinking about it, and I'm asking people to drop me a line at LarryAElder at gmail.com and ask me whether or not you think I ought to get into this. But something has got to happen. Crime is out of control. The police are demoralized because of this bogus narrative that the police are engaging in systemic racism. You've got uh, criminals that are being released without bail. You've got 20,000 prisoners released early because of COVID, many of whom are going to reoffend. I guess they're more afraid of lawsuits by these prisoners than, than the victims that these prisoners are going to have once they're on the street. 
streets. And get this, 76,000 more prisoners in California are going to be eligible for early release over the next several months, several years. It is absolutely out of control. And then we've got homelessness. You have uh, the Senate just passed, the state Senate just passed a bill, uh, Ashley, to pay meth addicts not to be meth addicts. What do you think the meth addicts are going to do with the money? And that's the whole approach to homelessness. The idea is to build homes, but they're not addressing the underlying reason why the people are on the streets in the first place. Some of them are psychotic. Some of them have, have schizophrenic uh, diseases, and they need to be held if they're a danger to themselves and others. Others have drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and unless you treat the underlying conditions, you're going to have the same problem. I urge that we get churches involved. They know far better what to do than government, can do it more efficiently, can do it more effectively and more cheaply. And then you have this outrageous cost of living. My father worked two full-time jobs as a janitor, was able to buy a home. I just looked on Zillow the other day, and the home that my dad bought is now $600,000. Work three full-time jobs, you wouldn't be able to afford that because of the cost of living in California. Right. Sounds like a good campaign message to me, Larry. You make sure, let us know when you, you know, decide um, what you're doing. I, 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 can, you, can you imagine any kind of a debate? Can you imagine a series of interviews like this with a man who doesn't pull punches and knows of what he speaks? When's the last time the governor of California was that strong with common sense and agility and quickness of mind? The obvious answer is Ronald Reagan. You want a memory? I was Who was I talking with the other day? Someone I was talking with the other day about uh, Ronald. Oh, yes, I, I, I recall it was... Um, it was our friends. Uh, it was it was our friends from um, from uh, uh, from the uh, uh, college academic. Uh, what, what what are they? Uh, American College of Trustees and Alumni. He, we were talking about what governors used to be able to do because they used to have something called strong moral fiber when it came to dealing with their renegade public colleges and universities. And the reason Ronald Reagan was taken seriously for president as early as 1968, people don't realize he went to the Miami Republican Convention in 1968 as a potential candidate for president. The reason he was taken seriously for president in 1968 was because of what he did in his first year in office as governor in 1967. Here's an audio clip of that talking about the riots at Berkeley with a series of reporters, none of whom he is happy with. Those people told you for days in advance that if the university sought to go ahead with that construction, they were going to physically destroy the university. Now, why did you negotiate many times? Negotiate? What is to negotiate? What is university is a public institution? That's right. But the university, its own community, and for the community of Berkeley that live around it. All of it began the first time some of you who know better and are old enough to know better let young people think that they had the right to choose the laws they would obey as long as they were doing it in the name of social protest. There you go. That answers everything having to do with why last summer was out of control, answers everything with why our college campuses and universities are out of control, and I am looking forward to governors taking at least their charges as um, as uh, as uh, as uh, as uh, the nominees for trustees and regents to their public universities and colleges seriously like Ronald Reagan did and like no doubt Larry Elder will do. For Larry Elder to talk that way, 
about the homeless problem, for Larry Elder to talk that way about the mental health problem, for Larry Elder to talk that way about the substance abuse problem, all in an answer to what is going on with the very serious problems that California are facing, is simply beautiful. It's simply beautiful because it's the kind of clarity and common sense that is so desperately needed, not just in California, but throughout the rest of the country. Those are apples of gold in frames of silver, what Larry Elder talked about. And the problem is everyone knows what he says is true. It's just that too many people are afraid to say it and too many people are invested, yes, invested in the decline, in the collapse, in the nonprofits and in the NGOs that are involved in saying things like the homeless problem is for a shortage of housing, not issues having to do with substance and uh, substance abuse and mental health, which, of course, is what the problem is. Paying people not to be drug addicts, paying addicts not to be drug addicts. You know, I think the 12-step programs, particularly the ones um, I'm most familiar with, have some of the best successes of all recovery programs in America. You know what they fundamentally don't do? Pay you to go. Pay you to show up. In fact, they ask you to put a little money in for the privilege of showing up so that you're invested in it and can cover the costs of not math, but coffee. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson show. Is it going to be like Billy Carter? What is the, um, prevalence with which hunter biden is going to show up in the news is it going to be every other month scott johnson the good news is that hunter biden has figured out how to make up whatever income he lost when his term on the board of burisma expired the bad news is that his replacement gig may be even shadier as miranda divine puts it in her new york post column on hunter's new gig In October, a snazzy art gallery in New York City's high-rent Soho district is scheduled to put on the market some 15 works created by the president's son, whose artistic experience, as far as I know, until now has been limited to doodles on strip club cocktail napkins. What's so shady about all this? Miranda explains these multimedia monstrosities, which one critic said resemble renderings of the COVID-19 virus, but to me look like bacteria on acid, are expected to fetch between $75,000 and $500,000 each. Think about that. Fifteen works of art created by Hunter Biden, each expected to fetch up to $500,000 each. Each, the White House is insisting that the identities of buyers remain secret from Hunter Biden as well as from the public so as to avoid any appearance of impropriety where someone might potentially buy a Hunter Biden piece of art only to expect a favor from the quote unquote big guy. 
Is secrecy an ethical keystone here? Byron York considers the possibilities, and it's almost funny. Hunter Biden himself would not comment, but a White House spokesman claimed that the secret buyer deal shows that the Biden administration, quote, has established the highest ethical standards of any administration in American history, close quote. It is what might be called in other circumstances a con. A con. You think keeping from the public those who paid $500,000 a pop for Hunter Biden's artwork is the ethical thing here? Not knowing who these people are? Well, maybe the people are entitled to their privacy, one might say. Yes, that is what Hunter Biden keeps saying. But then he keeps doing these very, very public things and asks us not to comment. I guess he's a student of the BLM curricula that says we do not need to justify our position. It's fun to be a Democrat. You don't have to, ra- you don't have to defend or rationalize anything. You just shut up any opponent. I'm Seth Liebson, 602 508 We'll be right back. 